Um, The Bible reading today is from Romans 8 on page 1133 of the Blue Bibles, starting at verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he had predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks, Ainsley, and uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Cam Maxwell. I'm one of the uh, the pastors here. Um, In the weeks following Christmas, we knew lots of people would be coming and going, so we figured let's not have a series that all kind of hangs together in case you miss one. Uh, Let's just pick five great passages of the Bible, and we'll look at them sort of one at a time. I reckon if you uh, toured the world, interviewed thousands of Christians, what are your five most loved Bible passages? I reckon the most common one would be Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans has been described as the greatest letter ever written. All the letters ever written, Romans, 8, Romans is the best letter ever written. And uh, of Romans, chapter 8 is often described as the best bit of the best letter ever written. I reckon that's a pretty fair claim myself. Um, I was actually pretty tempted to teach on, uh, preach on all of Romans 8 this morning, but I figured that would take at least two hours, and I don't think anyone really wants that this morning. Uh, so I instead, f- figured let's just look at the, the climax, uh, the very end of this wonderful part of a wonderful letter, uh, and see what we have to se- uh, see what we can there. I think, uh, given that we're looking at the climax of the best part of the best letter ever written. Uh, my job today is just to not wreck it all, actually, uh, and try not to distract us from how great this passage is and just let it really uh, speak for itself. That's our hope. Uh, so please keep Romans 8 open in front of you. That'd be a helpful thing to do. And uh, please join me as we begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And as we come to it, we ask that you would uh, speak to us. Please give us each ears to hear so that we might uh, have the refreshment that comes from a deeper and uh, more confident knowledge of who you are and how great your plans are. We ask all this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Uh, You would have hopefully picked up uh, in that passage, probably the big idea is that God is for his people. That's the idea in Romans chapter 8. He's not just for his people a little bit, he's entirely for his people. Uh, In some ways, that's kind of the big idea of the Bible. God loves his people. He shows incredible grace and great kindness to those uh, who are his 
But as you sort of say that God is for us, it kind of, you realize pretty quickly it matters in what way God is for us. You need to kind of get that clear, right? Um, God is for us has been used as, uh, as a way to convince people that, oh, we will win this battle, God is for us, or we will win this basketball game because God is for us, uh, even though the opposition is saying exactly the same thing, right? It, doesn't, it sounds a bit silly when you realize uh, how it's often used. So our job today is to be clear, uh, to clear about what Paul is saying as he says that God is for us. And we need to be clear, I think, because this is such an important truth for Christians to hold onto tightly. I reckon there are probably three main ways that Christians will doubt this central claim of the Bible that God is for us. I'll explain each of those three very briefly. The first one might be that when things go really badly, when life takes a turn, we lose a job or lose a loved one or we're facing chronic illness, we're praying, we don't see answers and we wonder, is God really for me? God, who's supposed to be powerful, supposed to be able to do all these things, is he really there? Is he, is he there at all? That's the first way. We doubt whether God's there. Second way is we might be tempted to you know, disobey God's words, uh, to do our own thing. When that happens, what we're actually doubting is that God is really for us. We're doubting that what God says is actually good for us, and we'd rather just you know, take matters into our own hands, kind of thinking that God's actually just wanting to boss us around. He's not really for us. Third way I think we doubt this central claim is that uh, in those moments when we're racked with guilt or sort of crushed by shame, uh, we've given into temptation and we just feel silly even asking for forgiveness. We wonder at that point, is God really for me? How could he be? I must be the only person at church who doesn't have my life altogether. How can God still love me? There's at least three great ways we doubt that central claim and I suspect that there are many parts of the world where um, being a Christian actually makes it even harder to, uh, to hold fast to this truth, in places where it's far harder to be a Christian. So take the Pakistani Christian who's worried about whether their family will you know, survive the rest of this week. Take the Chinese Christian who knows the government's watching them and they could be in jail at any point. Take the Eritrean Christian in Africa that, who are often arrested and some are locked in shipping containers in the African Surely they're wondering, is God really for me? Uh, The Apostle Paul who writes this letter, he wants to explain very carefully what this gospel, this good news is. He wants to be very clear what it means when we say God is for us. And Paul himself, he needs to explain this pretty clearly because his own life is kind of a contradiction. On one hand, he's saying God's for us. There is great joy uh, having life with Christ. That's what he's saying. And yet Paul's life was kind of a disaster he gets arrested, he gets beaten, he gets flogged, he gets shipwrecked, he gets stones with, with rocks. It's a bit of a strange thing to hold together. God is for us, and yet, like, you look at Paul's life and you think, really? So Paul in Romans is explaining very carefully how God is for us. So very briefly, I'll run us through the first seven chapters as quickly as I can. The first three chapters... Paul explains that whether we're Jewish and have grown up knowing God's law, or whether we're Gentile and we've grown up sort of making it up ourselves as we go along, working out what's right and wrong, Jewish, Jewish or Gentile, either way, we're all heading to God's courtroom to give an account for our life, and we're all in big trouble, very big trouble. Jew and Gentile will both hear the, the verdict, guilty. But, Paul explains, the good news is God offers another way, another way for those who trust him. So trust or faith uh, is the word Paul uses. Faith in Jesus, is that's the game changer. If we trust Jesus, Jesus willingly steps in to take our sentence on himself. 
Jesus takes our sin and the punishment that comes with it. Jesus, amazingly, is the one who gets declared guilty. Jesus gets condemned. Jesus faces the judgment of God. So those who have faith in him don't have to. It's an amazing kind of uh, set of claims that Paul structures and puts together in those first three chapters. But that's not all, he says. The amazing thing that happens as we put our faith in Jesus is that we're, we're bonded to him. Uh, Paul uses the language, we are in Christ, which means like where Jesus goes, we go. What he does, we do. What Jesus has, we have. So, uh, not only are we innocent, not only are we spared punishment, we get clothed in Jesus' righteousness. This, this word kind of describes his, his good standing with God. We're not just innocent in God's eyes, we're righteous because we're with Jesus. But that's not all, says Paul. In Christ, we get freed from the power of sin and death, the, the two great enemies. But that's not all, says Paul. If we're in Christ Jesus, if well, if we're in him, we get treated like he does, the son. And so we're part of, we're adopted into the loving family of God with all the privileges and blessings that come with it. It's, it's a brilliant description. I've run through it extremely quickly. Paul takes sort of seven chapters to unpack all that. But the reason I've, I've kind of started right at the start of Romans is to point out when Paul says to us, God is for us, he's not saying God is for everyone in the same way. God is for those who have put their faith in Jesus. Uh, so it may be uh, you're here today and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Uh, it's great you're here. Welcome. Uh, we love having people checking out who Jesus is uh, amongst us. So we hope you have an encouraging morning with us. And I hope especially as we look at how God is for his people, uh, please bear in mind, as I say all these things I'm about to say, these great promises uh, that Paul is declaring, uh, they extend to everyone. Those promises extend to anyone who turns to Jesus and puts faith in him. Now, Romans 8 is a, is a wonderful description of, of what that life is, the, the Christian life, uh, being, part of God's fa- being part of God's family with his uh, great favour. But as we get to Romans 8, Paul, um, I think what he does here, he focuses on what a lot of people today, uh, Christians and non-Christians, I think kind of get a bit wrong about Christianity. So if you read through Romans, Paul makes very clear, yeah, God is absolutely for us, and we might think, oh great, God's for me, life will be wonderful. Creator of the universe, he'll make my life good. Be wonderful. God will fix everything. There'll be smooth sailing. Life will be just a breeze. But in chapters 7 and 8, Paul is kind of explaining, well, no, actually, it's a bit more complicated than that. There is the issue of timing. We live in a world that is still actually waiting for something better. It still needs renewing. We live in bodies, actually, that still need renewing. That's still to come. So if you have Romans 8 open in front of you, just look at verse 22 for a second. This is just before the, um, the passage we had read for us. I'll read verses 22 and 23 of Romans chapter 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So what we can often get wrong is this issue of timing. In verse 16, if you were to read a bit earlier, Paul has said we are adopted if we're in Christ. And verse 23, what we just read, he says, well, we're still waiting for our adoption. There's this now, but also a not yet. That's what Paul's kind of explaining here in Romans 8. It's when we live. The timing that we're experiencing, the now but not yet tension, is what we face as Christians. Yes, God is absolutely for us, but bear in mind... We're still looking forward to the time that creation and our bodies will be redeemed. 
which means now might be very hard. Because of this great tension, Paul gives us great assurance. So finally, after such a long intro, we get to verse 28. Let me read for us. Verse 28, Romans 8. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. It's a great verse, isn't it? If you sort of stop there, it's, it's a wonderful uh, kind of promise. And I'm sure many of us have used this verse to comfort a friend going through a hard time, and, and rightly so. We want to assure them that, yes, God, God is in control and he has a great plan for your life. It's not an accident what you're experiencing. But it's worth pausing and sometimes just reflecting, what do people hear when we say that? Like, if we're, if we're comforting a friend with this verse, does, does our friend hear what Paul wants them to hear? If you took this verse just by itself, what you could hear, perhaps, is, well, God will eventually give you all the things you want. He'll give you good health, he'll give you wealth, he'll give you happiness. Perhaps he's just using your loneliness now to prepare you for a great marriage, or perhaps your sickness you're experiencing, God will use to help others greatly in the future. Sure, you lost your job, but I'm sure God's got a better one for you. God has a plan for your life. Those things might all be true, maybe. I'm not sure how we would know for sure. Thing is, that's not what Paul's talking about. That's not God's plan. This verse, verse 28, is true for the Christian who is about to face the executioner. God is working through all things, even their death. That's for their good. So God's plan isn't to give us the things we want. God's plan is to make us more like Jesus. Verse 29, Paul uses the the language, conformed to the image of his son, being made more like Jesus. That's God's plan. So what he's saying is everything, all we encounter, happiness, sadness, everything in between, God is working through all those things. And he's making us more like Jesus. That's God's plan. Is it a good plan? Like, Paul seems to think so. Like, God's been working on this plan for eternity. That's kind of the point he wants to make. But what's so good about being conformed to the image of Jesus? Like, why be more like him? I'm not sure how that sort of sits with you. Does it excite you? Does it inspire you? Like, confuse you, perhaps? It may be you don't know a lot about Jesus, and this just might sound very strange, that this is God's plan. This is God's plan. That's what it is. Um, Throughout Romans, what Paul's been doing is he's explained that Jesus is the perfect human. Uh, That's kind of the way he explains it. Uh, Humanity, uh, we were made actually to be in the image of God. We're supposed to reflect what God's like. So we're supposed to be people who reflect God's goodness, his kindness, his generosity, his justice. The problem is, from Adam and Eve down, every single person has taken that image and just distorted it a little bit. So what was supposed to be generosity becomes selfishness. Instead of kindness, there's sort of a self-centeredness and an anger. The word sin gets used to describe that sort of distortion of humanity. It's a distortion of God's good image. But Jesus, he is the image of God, the perfect image, which means he's the perfect human. What we should have been like, or as it says here, what God is making us to be like. God is restoring our image our true humanity, which means we'll be good all of the time. We'll be reflecting God's goodness, his beauty, and his glory all the time. We get to enjoy a relationship with God to the fullest all the time. So it's worth reflecting on that. That's God's plan for our lives. And I think my understanding is the longer you've been following Jesus, the more mature, more mature you become, 
I take it the better that plan sounds. Like the more we know of Jesus and what he's like and the more we know how badly distorted we really are, how good Jesus is, I think the better that plan sounds as we eagerly await for the redemption of our bodies. So that's God's plan. It is a good one. Will it work? Will God's plan work? I used to, um, I used to work in manufacturing. Anyone who has worked in a factory will tell you that we would like to make things perfectly every time. Um, in my case, we were making bricks. It was a very exciting factory. Um, we want to make things perfectly every time. That's the plan. But we also expect, oh, we'll probably stuff up quite a few. Uh, it's kind of just the nature of the beast. In my case, we were pretty happy if we made about 90% of our bricks. If they turned out all right, we were okay with that. That's okay. Is God's success rate 90%? Is that how often God pulls off his plan? It might sound like a, a silly question, but I think, if, I think that's what we're wondering about as we doubt as Christians. Does God still love me? Will God stick with me through till the end? Or will I be sort of I don't know, the 10% who don't make it? Like, will God's plan work for me? Is it 100% effective? As Paul gets to verses 29 and 30, the point is God's plan will not fail. It doesn't fail. It can't fail. Verse 29. Those God foreknew, he also predestined. The point is, God had a plan right back before eternity began. God knew exactly who would be like his son. So he predestined or he pre-chose, he pre-determined each and every one. We could tie ourselves a knot at this point and kind of try and figure out exactly what does it mean when we talk about God foreknowing. What does he foreknow? How does he foreknow it? What is predestination? What does that involve? And perhaps you don't like that word or that idea. That's a very important kind of discussion to have. But today, uh, I think I just want to stick with what Paul's trying to say here is the big picture. That's what he's giving us, the big picture. He's saying it's an eternal plan. We have an eternal God who can, he can know everything, and he's chosen what he's going to do. The plan can't fail. No one can stuff it up. No one can get in the way. Um, have a look. Uh, who does all the work in these verses? 29 30. God foreknows. God predestines. God calls. Uh, which, by the way, um, that's not kind of a, a vague invitation. When Paul uses the language of God's calling, he's talking about God calling people into a relationship with him and they actually come. So God calls. God justifies. God glorifies. Pretty clear point, right? It's all done by God. This God is he's eternal and he can use every single detail in the universe to bring about the plan as he sees fit. Pretty cool. If God's in the driving seat, nothing can go wrong. His plan will not fail, 100% success rate. Those he foreknows, he does everything so that they will be glorified. This is some of the most assuring verses in the Bible, I think. Because they tell us, if we belong to him, he will never let us go. He will see us all the way through to glory. So it's a good plan. It will work. Why does it matter? What's the point of this? I think the point is that God really is for us. And his plan is, is far better than any plans we could come up with by ourselves. The issue is it might not seem that way. It might not feel that way at points. Um, scripture itself gives plenty of examples, actually, where God's plan looks pretty terrible to start off with. Uh, in Genesis, 
uh, Joseph gets sold into slavery by his own brothers, and you think, that's terrible. What's God doing? Turns out, God knew what he was doing, and he used that to gather a people to himself to save from slavery. Perhaps the best example in Scripture, though, of what looks like a terrible plan, Jesus. The only righteous person who's ever lived gets unfairly accused, he goes to a mock trial that's just a disaster of justice, gets killed in the most brutal way known at the time, and you think, well, how bad is this? Oh, God knew what he was doing. What about the salvation of billions of souls? So it's, a, it's, a fine, um, it's fine, I think, to, to want good things in this world, good health, good happy family, fulfilling job, they're good things. But our temptation is that when we don't get those things or we perhaps lose them, our temptation is to blame God. Paul's wanting us to see here that God really is for us. Look at what he's done. Justified. Justified. To be able to stand before God, he doesn't say guilty. doesn't even say a little bit innocent. He says justified. Everything is completely good between you and I. Amazing. We get clothed in Jesus' righteousness. There's no guilt. There's no shame. Glorified. Getting to share in Jesus' majesty, his, his mind-blowing, kind of elating shininess. We get to enjoy that. Get to drink in his goodness and his overflowing joy that comes with sharing his glory. That's God's plan for his people. Eternally. It's a far better plan than any other. These verses, I think, are so precious to so many people because they give us such wonderful assurance. No matter what's happening, disappointment or pain or feeling the weight of sin or guilt, feeling hopeless, if we trust Jesus, God is for us 100%, no doubt. It's a good plan, it will definitely work, but we still live in bodies that are not yet redeemed. We live in a world that's broken and sinful. So Paul's not saying, well, just kind of don't worry about the problems, just live in some kind of Zen state where everything's fine, ignore the problems. That's nonsense, right? That's completely unrealistic. We know we live in a broken world. We know we will face difficulty in these bodies. But God is working for our good. So what do we make then of how to face opposition and and accusations and, and hardships? What do we do knowing that God is for us? Well, verse 31, what shall we say to respond to these things? Like, how do we respond to how brilliant the gospel is, being saved from God's wrath, clothed in Christ's righteousness? What do we say about these things? If God is for us, well, who can be against us? I think, actually, probably quite a few people when you sort of sit and think about it. Like, Satan, for one, he's clearly not for us. Stalin, Pol Pot, Kim Jong-un, Richard Dawkins, these are not people who are for Christians, right? I'm sure you could all think of a colleague or a a, um, classmate or a family member who are hostile because you're a Christian. We could all write our own list. There are plenty of people who are not for us. Paul's not saying no one is for us. He's saying God's for us. Who cares who's against us? What are they going to do? They're up against, not us, they're up against the sovereign creator of the universe. Good luck to them. It's kind of like the snail trying to take on like the US military or something. You know what the outcome's going to be. It's not going to happen. 
Like, what's the worst anyone can do to us? Well, kill us. Well, that just actually speed on the day where we became more like Jesus. God wins. Verse 32, I think, is, is the great proof that Paul, uh, that Paul wants us to know. God is really for us. He didn't spare his son for our sake. That's how much he loves us. That's, that's the proof to keep going back to, to be reminded of how much we can be assured of God's love. If he's given us his own son, the best thing he can give, we know he will graciously give us all things. Um, I've heard it described a bit like this. Um, just imagine I was a super rich billionaire. Yeah. Um, and I'll say it's you know, Angela and Lockie. Where are you guys sitting? Can't see you now. I'm back. So, Angela and Lockie, great to see you know, Hazel dedicated this morning. It's put me in a really good mood. I feel like sort of celebrating with you guys. Why don't you go choose a house for Hazel? Uh, something really nice. Um, don't, don't go skimpy. Get something really good for her. I'll pay for it all. Deck it out with good furniture. Put it all on my card, on my account. Go for it. So Andrew and Lockie say thank you, and off they go. And they, they choose a good house right here in you know, Colonel Light Gardens so they can be at church at 8.45 every week. <laughs> and then uh, Lockie comes in a few weeks later and says, Cam, thanks so much. We're loving the house. It's working out really well. But oh, I feel a bit awkward. We don't have a lawnmower, and the lawn's kind of getting out of control. You know what the Colonel Light Gardens Council are like. <laughs> bit embarrassing, but could you cover us for a lawnmower as well? And I say... Get lost. I've already got your house and furniture. I'm not getting your lawnmower. Nah, of course not. If I'm generous enough to give them a house and everything in it, like a lawnmower, what's that? If I've already given you the expensive thing, the cheap thing doesn't matter. Go for it. God has not spared his only son. We know he'll give us all we need to get us through to that last day. Do we deserve to be there on the last day? How about verse 33? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? So here we are in God's courtroom. Evidence is about to be presented against us. Who's going to bring charges? Who will accuse us? Again, I'm sure we could all sort of sit down and think, well, actually, there's plenty of people who could rightly accuse us before God of doing the wrong thing. People we've hurt or ignored or neglected, abused, mocked, stolen, etc. I'm sure Satan himself, who is described as the accuser, he would love to have his day in God's court accusing us. Again, it's not that there is no one who could accuse us, it's just that it's God himself who justifies. He's the judge. He said it's all good. All those accusations, if we're trusting Jesus, those accusations are already dealt with by Jesus. They're all directed his way. He steps into the defendant's dock for us and every single charge falls on him. God himself justifies. He declares us righteous not because of what we do, but because Christ has carried all those charges on himself. The accusations, they just don't stick. How about verse 34? Who then is the one who condemns? Well, again, we could write that list, couldn't we? We could write a list of people who could make a good case. We deserve hell. We have hurt people really badly, I'm sure. We have neglected justice or even worse, intentionally carried out injustice. Perhaps some of us would even condemn ourselves. I'm not worthy. Guilty, we would plead. But the only one, the only one who has any right to condemn us, the perfect man, Jesus, what's he doing? Certainly not condemning us. He sits in the position of power at God's right hand. He's already died for us. 
He's taken our condemnation. What a miscarriage of justice if he were to also condemn us. That condemnation has already happened. Look what he's doing at God's right hand, not condemning us. It says he's interceding for us. That is, he's arguing for us. He's arguing our case. They're with me. They're okay. There's no condemnation left, not a thing. It's very good news, isn't it? Okay, well, what about the other things that could get between now and seeing Jesus again? Will we be separated from his love? Will Jesus give up on us? Will we give up on him? Will trouble or hardship or persecution sort of break us down and disqualify us? No. How about the extremes of famine or nakedness or danger or even the sword of the executioner? No. Those things might come our way they might even come our way because we love Jesus. That's normal. Um, verse 36, it kind of feels like it stands out a little bit here, but you realize what Paul was saying as he quotes from Psalm 44? The whole Psalm, Psalm 44, is kind of a lament that bad things keep happening to God's people. So Paul's pointing out, as he quotes um, in verse 36 there, he's pointing out that injustice and heartache are kind of normal throughout history for God's people, but don't be discouraged by them. Not at all. It's actually through these things, not despite them, it's through these things that God is working out his plan to make us even more like Jesus. See, verse 37, it's not just that we survive these things, we kind of just have to grit our teeth and get through them and we'll somehow come out okay. No, no. In these things, we are more than conquerors. Even as we go through hardships or as we were literally uh, perhaps led like lambs to the slaughter, so you think of those images, those horrific images that came out of Syria. Even through those things, we are more than victorious. That's how powerful Christ's love is. Through the absolute worst, Christ's love is transforming us, making us more like him. Is my faith strong enough to get me there? Will my faith survive those, those storms that might come? Are my sins just too grievous? God knows and loves those who are His. There is absolutely nothing that can separate us from that. He really is for us, and that will not change. Like these final couple of verses couldn't be more comprehensive, I don't think. Verse 38 For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, and you know, just in case Paul missed something accidentally, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we belong to Jesus, God really is for us and always will be. There is absolutely nothing that can change that. I'm convinced, says Paul, of that truth. I suppose the question for us is, well, are we convinced? It's one thing to kind of agree with Paul, like intellectually, yeah, God's for me, he will be, that's great. But do we live like convinced people? Convinced, actually, that God really is for me, no matter what. So if you took Paul's life, you can tell he is convinced by the way he lives. He knew God loves him, so off he went. And he poured his life out into the service of others, serving Jesus with all he had. Paul spent himself. His whole life was kind of poured out, trying to show others just how good this is, this good news about Jesus. Paul's life, 
in the service of Jesus was very costly. He didn't shy away from those hard conversations. He made financial decisions that didn't put his own comfort first. It was very much about the gospel. He made risky decisions. He faced all the hardships on this list, including actually the sword. Fully convinced. Now, of course, not holding out Paul's example uh, to us to condemn us. After all, you know, who can? We're not actually called to replicate Paul's life. It's actually a pretty intimidating standard he sets. But I mention it because I think Paul really does model for us what the convinced life looks like. To be convinced, God really is for us. I reckon that's a pretty good thing to have in front and centre of our minds as we start our year out, as we sort of organise our calendars and work out our commitments, our priorities, as we sort of review our budgets. Being driven by the thought, yes, God really is for me. I think that assurance is what grows generosity, what grows our willingness to do what it takes to see the gospel go out to the world. It drives our desire to sort of pour ourselves out for others and care for them and to see others grow to maturity uh, here at church. Be a great driving thought in our year. God really is for us. So please join me as I finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that your eternal plan uh, is to bring your son incredible glory and honour. Thank you that uh, you've drawn a people to yourself to share that incredible blessing and glory with. Thank you for the reminder this morning that you really are for us and that um, we could be assured of this as you've shown us already the great depths of your love in not sparing your son. Please help each one of us to be convinced that nothing can separate us from your love. And so help us to live lives with great confidence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.